according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes to the scriptures. Philippians chapter 1 is our passage as we return back to verses 14 through 17, detailing these two crowds, what I'm calling the good guys and the bad guys, but um, even the bad guys are saved as far as we can tell, part of the uh, community of faith that uh, Paul is addressing here. And so we want to understand uh, false motivations for what they are and how sometimes believers under false motivations are far more energetic than believers with the appropriate motivations, which uh, becomes uh, kind of an interesting thing to, uh, to look at. Before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you just so thankful, praying for each brother and sister here tonight to be fed, to be blessed, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. Father, I pray that we're here tonight for the right reasons, with the right motivation, not uh, for the wrong reasons. And that's what we're studying, Father. So we want to live it out. We want to uh, observe uh, your faithfulness. We're here, Father, to, uh, to grow. We're here to learn. And uh, we want to be equipped to be better servants in your, in your hands. So Father, bless our time tonight. And the questions that are asked, the answers that are given, the word that's studied, the prayers that are offered, the encouragement that is uh, communicated, the fellowship that takes place, everything, Father. All of it for the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All righty, we have a microphone ready to go. The runner is ready. All right. The runner's on that side of the room, so doesn't matter. Whoever wants to have the first question is on this side of the room, so we'll do that. And while the runner runs, I will double check my noise device. We're good. Yes, and I can make the text bigger. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I've been going to ask you this for some time. I keep forgetting. In Ephesians... Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And we know that God puts all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gives them as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Please explain the fullness of him who fills all in all. I keep running into this lately. Mm-hmm. That's a great question, and I'm not going to answer that tonight. Um, because I am, uh, even now, I'm, I'm presently working on a study on the fullness. And uh, it's going to come up in Hebrews. It's going to come up in some eschatological studies in terms of the fullness of times. And uh, that fullness is indeed extremely significant. And um, to the, to the, uh, that, in fact, if you back up to verse 10, you have the, the definition here of the fullness of time, uh, that this is what the Father keeps in view, where He predestined us and He called us, and it's in Him we have redemption and all the grace and the mystery of His will, with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, all right? And then you have fullness repeated at the end of the chapter, and then there's filling and all of these things come into play, and they come into play in chapter 1, they come back again in chapter 2, 
the subjection of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places and, and some things there. And so a lot of that comes up in Ephesians. And there's a reason why I put Ephesians after Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. We're going to get there, but uh, we've got to learn some things along the way before we get there. And fullness is a big part of that. I think, too, we want to pay attention um, when he delivers the kingdom up to the Father, that God may be all in all. That's an expression that's, that's linked to this fullness concept, the all in all concept, right? So there's, there's, there's issues there. And when we read, I'm glad you, you highlighted this, he put all things in subjection under his feet. And so that is a placement, that is an appointment, that is in the will of the Father, a completed action, completed when he took his seat at the Father's right hand. And so the Father assigned that, but um, it's almost like um, we have differences in, in, in de facto and de jure and some other expressions. If something is under your authority, but not really, uh, it is under your authority um, officially or on paper, but the, the reality hasn't manifested yet, okay? Uh, much of this, even though it's stated as complete, is still waiting for the millennium and is still waiting for the fullness of time. Okay, which goes on my second part of the question, uh-huh. and this keeps niggling in my brain. The, the groom is incomplete without the bride, and God created Eve for the man, mm-hmm. and with the Eve, Adam was completed. They became one flesh. Is it possible that when Christ was begotten, that he, he was incomplete without the bride? That was God's intention from the beginning. I'd say that's a fair statement, sure. When, when God the Father begat the, humani- the human nature of Jesus Christ and invested it into the, you know, birthed it into the person of God the Son, then yes, that was a human soul spirit. And that human soul spirit is a male human soul spirit. And, uh, and the male human soul spirit is not complete. That is not good for the man to be alone. And that the, the bride is designed. The woman was created for man, not man for the woman. And that's very specific in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Before I forget, um, I wanted to bring up one more point on the, uh, in Hebrews chapter 2. Um, It's not just my opinion. Scripture records this. In Hebrews 2, uh, 8, it says, In subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. And so even though Ephesians says that the subjection has taken place and that it's, it's accomplished, it's a past completed act, that the Father did this. Well, the Father did this, and that's in heaven, but it's not yet on earth. Right? That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the subjection, even though it's a reality between the Father and the Son, that all things are subjected to the Son, that subjection has not yet been achieved on the earth. And uh, it's not my opinion, all right? It's, uh, it's Scripture that says that. We do not yet see all things subjected to Him. And that's a huge part of the doctrine and throughout the book of Hebrews. And it destroys, by the way, these <laughs> brothers and sisters with their bad doctrine who uh, insist, absolutely insist, that the kingdom has already begun. 
that Jesus, when he sat on the Father's right hand, he has sat on the throne of David, which never has been in heaven, but never mind. That, that the kingdom began when Jesus ascended. And we're in the kingdom now, and we're bringing people into the kingdom, and they've got all this kingdom, kingdom, and kingdom. Whereas you and I understand, dispensationally speaking, the throne of David remains vacant until the mountain comes crashing down from heaven and fills the earth, and, and it requires the second advent of Jesus Christ to bring in the kingdom. So uh, it's not just my opinion, it's not just that my theology is better than their theology. Uh, my Bible says right here, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. And that's the, uh, the author of Hebrews and the writing of, of whenever you date Hebrews, um, after the writing of Ephesians, no question. So um, Anyway, that's, that's another thing. We'll get to that in our, in our Hebrews series, so stay tuned for that. But if you think that Jesus is reigning on the throne right now and that, uh, and that uh, um, we should be ruling this world, no, this is a fallen world. This, the Satan is still the god of this age and this is still a fallen world until uh, such time as Jesus returns in the second advent. So appreciate that. All right, other questions tonight? Otherwise I'm going to camp out on this for... The whole hour. I'll just take the whole hour. To... Yes, sir. Um, reference to Daniel 7, 13, 14. Daniel 7. Um, so he talks about a transfer of authority. Uh-huh. When does this take place? Uh, in heaven? Or is he talking about... I mean, when is this transfer? Yeah, Daniel 7 is, uh, is a visionary chapter and it has a lot of back and forth between heaven and earth. And a lot of the earth scenes are tribulational scenes because they focus on the boastful horn. They focus on Antichrist, as we call him. And so uh, it references the, uh, uh, the tribulation. It references the, the evil that's accomplished under Antichrist and all of that. But then when the scenes switch to heaven, uh, we have a scene here in these verses, 13 and 14, between the Father and the Son. And so in Daniel seven thirteen, I keep, kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud, clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming. You remember, he comes on the clouds in Second Advent, but uh, here he's coming, but he's going the other direction. He's going to heaven, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so this is this is God the Son coming up to God the Father and standing before him. And it was and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so uh, this uh, we connect, I believe, we connect this with His ascension after the cross, that He ascended in victory. And there's another view of this in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, that uh, uh, John is weeping because no one's worthy to open the scroll until the Lamb of God comes uh, standing having been slain, and He's the one that's worthy to open the scroll. So uh, I believe both in Revelation and in Daniel we have a vision of a victorious Savior, that He accomplished the work He was given to do in First Advent, and He now ascends to the Father. It's really the only context whereby a victorious Son can stand before the Father and to be awarded the blessings of what He's awarded here. It also agrees with what we saw in Hebrews 1, that He has inherited a, a more excellent name than they that uh, because he was faithful in his first advent, he is now given a glory greater than his pre-incarnate glory. So, um, but it is a tough chapter because we're such time creatures and we want to have a sequence in time and, and, and this chapter defies time a lot of times in going back and forth and, and in that. So does that answer what you were asking? Okay.
appreciate that. Yeah, it's a great chapter. I love that chapter. I spend a ton of time when I go to Kiev and I teach Daniel and Revelation. Chapter 7 is a big part of that. So appreciate that. All right. Another question came in by email, and uh, she's not here tonight, but Lauren uh, Johnson was wanting to know, uh, the angels and their stewardship on their earth, on their angelic earth, did they also have a tree of life? And uh, because it was planted on Adam and Eve's earth, and it's going to be planted on the new earth, so was there a tree of life on the original angelic earth? And it's a marvelous question, and I, I, don't, I can't answer it. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't see a verse, I've read every verse in the Bible that connects to the tree of life, and none of those passages um, are in a context of, of the angelic stewardship, so I can't say one way or the other, but um, it's, it's a very worthwhile question. And what was angelic mortality like before, um, you know, while they were on the earth? I, I do accept the fact that angels today are immortal. Angels today, you know, you can't kill an angel today. But, but what was the case back then? You know, when, when, uh, when they were in their angelity present before they, you know, entered into their angelity future, uh, could they be killed? And yes, I can point to scriptures where uh, prisoners were not allowed to go home where Satan executed prisoners. And uh, other, other passages quite are of judgment that says, you will die like men. That's a judgment. And uh, in, the, in the process of that judgment, uh, they died. And so that's, uh, that's another aspect. So did they have a tree of life provision? Did they have, uh, we're going to see in Hebrews 2.2, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. That they stood and made a confession uh, whether they were going to serve God the Father or they were going to follow Satan's rebellion. And, and it seemed to be a, uh, a, no, a burning of the bridge and no going back. So on that basis I think there was no tree of life. There was no redemption possibility for the, uh, for the fallen angels. So anyway, that, that was Lauren's question. came in by email and I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a good, excellent, excellent question. Alright, well last call then for anyone. We'll cross to the other side then. Returning to the far left where we started tonight. I have a question that came up in uh, my last study of the Life of Christ series through Grace Notes. Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions was, is it more important to share the gospel or to grow spiritually? And the answer that was given in the Grace Notes itself said that it is more important to share the gospel than it is to grow spiritually. So I answered that question as you know, it says, mm -hmm. but I just, I can't get my brain wrapped around that as one being more important than the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. In fact, we encourage that in the Grace Notes. I'm not the author of, of most of the Grace Notes studies that are there, um, but it's, uh, I think it's useful, and I encourage anyone taking the Grace Notes course, if, if you get an answer wrong, defend your answer and explain why you answered how you answered and why you believe the curriculum doesn't hold the view you hold and then and different aspects there. So that's, that's excellent. You know, in some cases I'm more important than or most important of, and when, when you're commanded to do both, you know, since the Bible expects me to evangelize, and the Bible expects me to grow in grace and knowledge, the Bible expects me to, to uh, be a good husband and father and a good pastor and all these things, you know, how do I then, you know, say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice my marriage for the sake of my pastorate, or I'm going to I'm going to sacrifice my kids for the sake of whatever. And you know, the minute you start with a give and take, you've just gone to the world's methods. God expects us to give 100% in everything. And, and, and everything is, is supposed to be 
in obedience to the will of God. So I would, uh, I would reject the premise of the question. I would be like, and like, it's a good political answer too. When these weasel reporters try to trap you into something, say, I reject the premise of that question. And what you should be asking is this, and here's my answer. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, you can do that. Every time you submit a quiz, by the way, uh, not only do you submit it to Grace Notes, but then CC, you've been doing that, put me on the CC so that I, I get the email as well and I can read the answer. And I, I would love to read some, uh, some uh, theological disputations whereby, um, yeah. oh yeah, 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 well there you go. All right, well we appreciate that. Let's, uh, let's get to our um, Philippians material here. Forgot to start the slideshow, so there it is. Philippians, which is not the Philippines, by the way. When I was a little kid, I was really confused between the Philippines and Philippians. And, and I met Ralph and Cindy LaRosa that came and spoke at my church. I was eight years old, I think, when they went to the mission field. And for the longest time, I, I, I color me stupid, but the Philippines and Philippians just looked identical to me. And I was amazed that you know, that church Paul started was still there and they were <laughs> going to be missionaries. And Anyway, so I have learned in the meantime. That's right, can you imagine? I would do much better at Scrabble if I could spell. That was, that's really my downfall. All right, so we are in main point three as we're looking at it here. Paul's progress in the gospel became a goad. It was a goad to action, okay? He was making amazing progress in the gospel, which was evidently in Christ. They were manifest uh, chains in Christ. His well-known imprisonment, his progress in the gospel, these produced goads to action. In response to that, two different groups of believers got busy. And uh, we see this in verse 14. Most of the brethren, it was such a spark that nearly everybody got involved. All right. However many weren't included in most, whatever the minority was that just kept sitting on their pews. And, but most of the brethren got busy and they started serving. The problem was, uh, on the one hand, uh, they, were, they were busy, all right, but it was for all the wrong reasons. And uh, that's what we're looking at here tonight. So most of the brethren, persuaded by the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. And so it became a goad to communicate the Word of God, to start speaking the Word of God. And both groups, the right, right motivation, the wrong motivation, they were teaching the Word of God. It's just the wrong crowd was doing so with the wrong motivations, with the wrong objectives, the wrong goals. And, uh, and clearly, uh, when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, they're going to watch all of that effort, all of that busyness, all of that work, is going to go up in flames. It's going to be the wood, hay, stubble at the judgment seat of Christ that has no eternal value. So we're looking at it here. And, I, and remind me, before we're done tonight, to, I want to look at that uh, judgment seat of Christ passage. But let's focus here. We have um, being persuaded by the Lord. And patho is the verb we've talked about. Persuaded by the Lord. So that means that the crowd with the wrong motivations were still being persuaded by the Lord. They are the same object that the good crowd was. The Lord was persuading them also. Persuaded by the Lord because of my imprisonment. So the circumstances, God used those circumstances to persuade. And they were persuaded. 
And so they had courage. They were far more emboldened to speak the word of God without fear. Now, then we get to the groups. And in verses 15, 16, and 17, there's a lot of back and forth. Some, uh, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. And we're going to see that tonight. Terrible motivations, mental attitude sins, uh, some of the things that God hates. In fact, the pinnacle, if there are six things that God hates, yea, even seven that are an abomination to Him, guess what, folks? That's the big one. That's number seven right there. The one who spreads discord among brothers. That's the, that's the pinnacle of the Proverbs passage that talks about the seven things God hates. And this is what they're motivated by. Envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. Or that is good pleasure. Okay? And so in this going back and forth, you've got the one hand and the other hand, the one hand and the other hand. And, and these verses keep going back and forth on that way. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. And so agape love, which is not an emotion, but it is, a, uh, it is a motivating virtue as it's produced within us as a fruit of the Spirit. And it's coordinated with a divine viewpoint orientation, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. If you know the will of God, you know God's appointments, you know why you're here, why Paul's here, you're, you're on board with God's plan. That's very important. The other crowd... Were they, uh, were they on board with, uh, did they know that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel? That didn't seem to be part of their, their uh, uh, factor at all. That was, they weren't, that was not any element they were putting into their consideration or into their thinking. Farthest thing from their thinking. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. And so we put selfish ambition on the bad guy side of the ledger and we put pure motives on the good guy side of the ledger. Back to the bad guys again. Thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Okay? Thinking to. Well, that's what you get for thinking. Okay? Supposing. Supposing. Thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So we do things from time to time thinking that this will be the result and we don't know. Okay? But we think this might be the outcome of something that we're trying to do. Well, God's in charge of that too. All right. So now what I've done in the process here, and I'll skip through some of this, uh, they were persuasively emboldening, and Christ did the persuasion, and Christ did the emboldening. And I'll get past that. All right, so what I did for point B and point C then was I went back and I rewrote these verses, taking all of the, the good guy stuff from these verses and linking them together in a long run-on sentence. And then under C, I took all the bad guy stuff and I linked them together from those verses and put together one long run-on sentence. So are we clear on how I did that? All right, so this is, uh, this is the, the total description of the good guys. Daring to speak without fear... Uh, because of goodwill. And really, I messed up because I should have included daring to preach. Well, it was the same daring to speak without fear in both groups. Um, but because of goodwill. That's huge. Okay, And we spent Sunday morning talking about goodwill. What is God's goodwill? What is the Father's goodwill? Because it's not our goodwill. If it's the Father who's at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure, then that's the goodwill we should be pursuing. Right? Peace on, on earth, goodwill towards men. What is that about? Okay. Well, the provision we have in Christ is for the Father's goodwill to be at work in us. The Father's goodwill. 
as, uh, as we're going to see here uh, shortly. And you turn over to chapter 2 and verse 13 and there it is. Um, I haven't read verse 12 in this context, but it's connected. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what the good crowd was doing there in chapter 1. They were working it out. They were expressing their eternal life in their service, letting the Father work in and through them for His good pleasure. For it is God who is at work in you, that's the Father, both to will and to do, or to work, for His good pleasure. And that's really what it comes down to. Do they have ulterior motives at work? Not at all. Do they have something nefarious that they're not? Not at all. Uh, do Do they think they know what the outcome might be? You know, ultimately speaking, if they're really walking by faith, that's the last thing on their mind. You know, the outcome is in God's hands. And uh, same thing if you're, if you're giving the gospel, if they accept it or they reject it, that's not your department. Your department is to preach the gospel. And it's the Father's good pleasure. And, and if, you, if you reap a harvest, great, the Father did that. If you don't reap a harvest, great, the Father did that. And you're just planting seeds for the next guy. And maybe he'll be the one that reaps the harvest, see, in terms of evangelism. But the, uh, the outcome, the results, you know, even if we have clues, even if we get little glimmers of what we think an outcome might be, we don't even know the half of it. We don't know just a fraction. You know, what, what are the, what's going to be the, the total outcome of the, fu- of the funeral I preached yesterday? We won't know for years and years. We may not know until heaven. You know, it may be something that a little kid heard that, that he thinks about 20 years from now, or who knows, Right? And so uh, that's, not our, that's not our department. So if, uh, if it's the bad guys that are doing what they're doing, thinking about what the results might be, uh, the good guys are doing what they're doing based on, because of goodwill, because of the Father's goodwill, working in and through them, and uh, so forth. And then out of love, out of love knowing God's appointments. And I love that too. Uh, knowing God's appointments. That's verse 16. The latter do it out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So it's a love motivation that's uh, driving what they do here. Knowing Paul's appointments. And uh, the idea of appointments there is not a very common term, but uh, in Luke 2.34 Jesus Christ had an appointment for the rise and fall of many. And in 1 Thessalonians 3.3 there's an appointment that's mentioned there also with respect to Paul and the hardship that's, uh, that he's destined for. And I like that expression. Actually the translation in Thessalonians is destined. Destined. Remember that? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.3 So that no one would be disturbed by by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed when we were with you we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction and so it came to pass as you know. And I like the term destined. And what I love about it, and especially here is in this, in this 1 Thessalonians 3 passage, he is sending Timothy to them to remind them of what he taught them while he was there. Isn't that something? And how old was Timothy at this point? I think he was a 10-year-old kid. Or 12, right? He can't be much older than that because uh, 10 or 15 years from now Paul's going to say, let no one look down on your youthfulness. So how, how, uh, if, he's, if he's still youthful enough to be despised 10 years after this event, then how old can he be in this event? Right? Anyway. And that 
Again, it comes down to how you date the sequence of Paul's travels and when did he write 1 Thessalonians and when did he write 1 Timothy with let no one despise thy youth. Okay? But if he wrote 1 Timothy in 62 and if he wrote this in 51, that's 11 years later. Anyway, more things to think about. But uh, knowing God's appointments, if a 10-year-old kid can, can grasp Paul's appointments, Paul's destiny, the fact that each one of us has a destiny in our generation. What is that destiny? Michael Snyder reached the end of his, uh, the purpose for his generation. He was done. God brought him home, well done, good and faithful servant. He accomplished what the Father had for him to do. And uh, you and I, there's more to go. <laughs> We're not done yet. God's not done with us yet. And uh, we can certainly appreciate that. So try to get a handle on destiny if you would. And let me just add Acts 13. It's not on the slide, but I like it. Um, uh, Acts 13, 36. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. So there you go. King David can't be the object of that prophecy because he decayed. It's the Christ that will not undergo decay. It's the Christ that's spoken of in that great prophecy. All right, so knowing God's appointments, knowing the will of God for a believer's life. It's a great motivation. And then finally, the pure motives. And I know I was going very quickly at the end of the hour Sunday morning, but the idea of pure motives and purity. And uh, purity is far more than just, you know, not making sexual mistakes or not you know, lusting. Purity is more than just sexual purity. There's a totality to purity. And if you limit purity to only one facet of purity, how diminished is that? Okay? And um, the pure motives is, is huge for everything that we do as part of what we're supposed to let our minds dwell on in Philippians 4.8. Uh, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. God holds you accountable for where your mind goes. And that's frightening. <laughs> I mean, that means I've got I to gotta keep it in the Scriptures. I've got to keep my mind renewed because without the renewal of my mind, there's the conformity to this age. And let me tell you, conformity to this age uh, is not true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, or anything in that, in that verse. Conformity to this age is just the opposite of that verse. See, I think the, the best way to teach that verse is understand that that verse describes Jesus Christ. Okay? Fix your eyes on Him. And uh, everything connected to Him. So pure motives. Pure motives. If it's not right, true, honorable, pure, lovely, good, why am I dwelling on it? Why am I pursuing it? Why is it motivating what I'm doing? Why am I preaching class here tonight? Is it out of selfish ambition? Is it, is it from some human thing? Am I trying to put another notch on my belt and rack up another number because I'm competing with some other pastor that's got fewer numbers than me? That's a useless waste of time because I'll never catch John Eichmann or, or R.B. Theme or Carl Neal or some of those guys. Not about that anyway. See, I'm still counting. But nevertheless, all right. Purity. And the fact is that the, the uh, impure motivation, the selfish ambition and the impure motivation trying to cause distress. Are you really trying to cause distress? What are you doing that for? 
Well, James 3 tells us that means you're following satanic wisdom is what you're doing. James chapter 3. Again, if I took you through it, if it was too fast Sunday morning, I'm going slower now. So listen up, okay? James chapter 3. James chapter 3 says there's two kinds of wisdom. Use the right wisdom, don't use the other wisdom. And uh, in a paragraph here that runs from verse 13 to verse 18, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. That's the good guy side of things in Philippians, not the bad guy side of things. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That's the bad guy side of things in our Philippians chapter. That's what they were doing. Then they were, embo- they were emboldened to speak the truth. So how, does it, how do they make a lie out of the truth? Because what they were saying did not conform to what they were thinking or how they were living. All right? So they were arrogant and lying against the truth. You might say everything that verbally is true, but because your heart's wrong and because your life is not in conformity, that's what you're doing. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. It's a different kind of wisdom. This wisdom is earthly, natural, demonic. Earthly, natural, demonic. So the next time one of these warm and fuzzy multicultural types tells you, oh, there's many paths, say, yes, there are. And almost all of them are earthly, natural, demonic. Okay? There's one path, though, that's not. Earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. Look at that. That's what we're talking about. That's the, that's the bad crowd of Philippians 1. Jealousy and selfish ambition. Okay? In, in Philippians it's called envy. Here it's called jealousy. All right? We can split hairs and say they're different things, but they're uh, twin sisters if they are different. <laughs> All right? Jealousy and uh, every evil thing. Look at that. Disorder. Um, but the wisdom from above is first pure. There it is again, purity. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Okay? Because it's coming from purity. It's coming from God's wisdom. And that's the good crowd from Philippians chapter 1. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So they're sowing seeds and they're going to reap a marvelous harvest. The other crowd's sowing seeds as well, but they're going to reap the whirlwind, we're told. That's a, that's a, that's a dark path. So the pure motives. And, and fundamentally it comes down to, again, I think when we get back to the, to the bad crowd here in Philippians 1, the pure motives, or the impure motives, include envy, selfish ambition, all about what they're doing, the name they're building for themselves, the opportunity they have to grab some disciples and to build a following and to, uh, to make Paul envious, to, uh, to cause Paul some kind of distress because they're, uh, whatever they're doing, building a following or, or tearing down what he had done. You know, think about it. How much distress does a grace ministry have when he learns that the guy that follows him is a legalist? <laughs> you think that causes distress? You know? Well... Anyway, I read the website of the uh, 
organization that presently operates on Woodrow Avenue where we used to operate. And I'm not calling them a church because they don't call themselves a church. But the organization that, uh, that does what they do there bring, causes me distress. <laughs> All right. And it shouldn't. I read it. Oh, Lord. I pray. And it just, it's, it's, it's a bummer. I mean, honestly. Because this lampstand was such a light for all those years, from 1974 to 2010. And you would like to think that there's some kind of legacy left behind, but um, I don't know. Anyway, that's, uh, that's not my department, by the way. Christ is head of the church, and I'm just responsible for, for these guys. So, um, But wonder about these guys. They're uh, trying to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. So let's look at the bad guys now. Uh, others... And they know who they are. You know, they're not named. Paul is very graciously uh, speaking, um, you know, anonymously here. He's not naming names. And I love that. He did the same thing with the man of incest in 1 Corinthians. We don't know who he is. We don't know his name. We're going to meet him in heaven and we're not going to know for, you know, for all eternity. We're not going to, people aren't going to be pointing and saying, ooh, that's the man of incest guy. Okay? Because we don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry if I pointed at somebody just there. Um, so, others preach Christ because of envy and strife. Now we're told this. It is a motivation. Envy and strife are motivational and they can drive people to do all kinds of things. People that are jealous, people that are envious, people that are trying to, to get a leg up on the next guy, they will work hard to accomplish that. But it's all motivated by the worldly wisdom from below. It's not peaceful, it's not gentle. gentle. Okay, It's earthly, natural, demonic. And yet they're preaching Christ. The thing they're doing is the very same thing the other crowd's doing. Notice it's the same activity. Most of the brethren persuaded by the Lord because of my chains have been emboldened to speak the word of God fearlessly. The, the group here that I'm calling the bad guys they were preaching the Word of God fearlessly. Doing the same thing the other crowd was doing. So doesn't that count? And, and here's both groups are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and on the one hand it's gold, silver, precious stones. And on the other hand it's wood, hay, stubble. And the fire is going to hit one work and it's going to be purified and it's going to remain and there's going to be treasure. The fire will hit the other work and it's consumed Nothing left over when the wood, hay, and stubble goes up in flames. And so uh, this is it. Some other passages that speak of envy and strife and this connection, I think, uh, we'll have some concepts here in, in chapter 2, verse 3. We're told, don't do this. <laughs> okay? Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there be any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is any consolation of love, and there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If there is any affection and compassion, and there is. Now the fact that these are all first class conditions means that they're all assumed to be true. But remember, they're only true for the good guys. They're not true for the bad guys Okay, of that, of that Philippians 1 crowd. The, uh, the, the bad guys from Philippians 1, they need an attitude adjustment. They need to adjust to be in conformity to this attitude. All right. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That means the bad guys got to change their thinking to come over and adopt the thinking that the good guys already have. Okay. 
Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. So what he's saying here is that these groups are going to reconcile, but they're going to reconcile by the bad guys completely coming over to the good guys' viewpoint. Okay, That's how repentance works. That's how reconciliation works. That's how God works. When He brings us from our unsaved state to the saved state, it's not uh, we're not meeting in the middle somewhere. Okay, We are 100% fallen creatures that are becoming 100% redeemed creatures totally brought into the righteousness of God. Same thing here with these factions in this church. Okay, That crowd that has the selfish ambition, they've got to stop. And they've got to be like-minded. And, and, and it's not just simply agree with those guys, it's agree with Christ. Because those guys agree with Christ. Paul says, I agree with Christ. Have the mind of Christ. And so um, being of the same mind, or thinking the same thoughts, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit with humility of mind. See, the selfish ambition can't do that. Selfish ambition will never regard one another as more important than themselves because selfish ambition says I'm the most important. I'm number one. They would never dream of saying he must increase and I must decrease. To them it's all about tear him down if I have to, I'm going to increase. You know, dog eat dog, step on whoever, climb that ladder. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, have this mind, this thinking in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. See the example is not the good guys from chapter 1, the example is not Paul, the example is Jesus. And that's what you have to be in conformity to. Anyway, that gets us into the kenosis and how he emptied himself and all the great doctrine that comes into uh, Philippians chapter 2. What about 1 Corinthians 3.3? See, Corinth had the same issue. And it's interesting to me that Paul is experiencing this here in Ephesus while he's writing to Philippi, while he's writing to uh, Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3.3. And here's here's the issue. When you are carnal, this is what's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 3.3, you are still fleshly, you are still carnal. And since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not carnal? Are you not walking like mere men? That schismatic group, that's exactly what they were doing. In their carnality, it was stunting their growth, they were not growing. And uh, that carnality was promoting this uh, selfish ambition, this jealousy and strife. And they were uh, marching behind the banners of their favorite, uh, you know, apostle or their favorite Bible teacher, what have you. When one says, I'm a Paul, another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? You're walking like unbelievers. You're, you're creating these fan clubs and whatever. Imagine what they would have done if they'd have had Facebook back then in, uh, you know, in uh, Corinth. So he says, what then is Apollos and what then is Paul's servants through whom you believed? even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And Paul's trying to bring them back into a divine viewpoint perspective. But they're not going to grasp that either until they get in fellowship. Their carnal mind isn't going to grab any of that. The the whole uh, chapter begins there, I can't talk to you as to men of spirit, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Until you're in fellowship you're not going to digest doctrine. The best you can do is sip some milk enough to convict you that you've got to get back in fellowship. Anyway, 
that's uh, that's a significant issue there. And I hope um, we get this. This is uh, part of basics. That's why we teach rebound. We teach confession of sin. You got to be in fellowship. Uh, the longer you spend out of fellowship, the worse it gets. The uh, the sooner you, I mean, as soon as you get convicted, respond to that first conviction. Because if you if you ignore that first conviction, now you're grieving. Now you're quenching. And the next conviction is going to be harder. The conviction after that is going to be harder. Every time the conviction ramps up, it's it's discipline, and it it, it hurts. So uh, sooner rather than later is the is a better process on that. In any event, we already read James three in this context to see the envy and strife that's there that motivates the envy that motivates and and and, and if we get a whiff of that here in this ministry, let me tell you, I am I, I jump on that. I, I don't want to see any of that. I don't want to see anybody teaching Sunday school for the wrong reasons or serving in the nursery for the wrong reasons or, or coming up on Saturday for the work day for the wrong reasons. All right? If you're going to be all carnal while you're pounding nails or whatever, go home and be carnal. I don't want, you know, it, it, it should be for the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay? Anyway. So um, there is that. Out of selfish ambition, thinking to cause Paul distress. Now, this we're told, this is their thinking. This is what they had in mind. Paul's not going to like this. <laughs> right? Ooh, Paul's not going to like this. Going to cause him distress. Why? Because I am preaching Christ. Now, why would Paul not be happy? Why would them preaching Christ bring Paul distress? Well, it, it doesn't. Okay, But they think it does. They think it does. And I don't know if you ever noticed that, but a lot of times carnally minded people or unbelievers or God-haters or whatever, any crowd, it's kind of human. We think that others are thinking the way we think. Because that's how we think. Okay? If you're a naturally dishonest person, if you're a snake and a liar and a manipulator, well then you're always terrified of those other snakes and liars and manipulators and, and what are they doing to you? Because you know they must be doing something to you because that's what you would do if you were them. Okay? That's how you think. And that's your mindset. And so here's this crowd thinking, ooh, Paul's going to be in distress. The reason why I think is because they're in distress. It bugs them to death that Paul's ministry didn't stop when he went to jail. That they're persuaded that Paul is actually bearing more fruit now in jail than out of jail. And they want to do something about that. (laughs) Oh, how hideous is this? Okay. Well, we're told that's what they were doing, and it's not unique, and it's not unique to uh, to the Ephesian imprisonment or the setting of, of, of Philippians. It also was a feature in Galatians. You might remember Galatians one seven. There were people disturbing them, and how were they disturbing them? Preaching, preaching a false gospel. Uh, Galatians 1 verse 6 says, I am amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. All right, remember this? And the, the crowd that Paul's writing to here, these churches in the Galatian region, it just stuns him that believers that are saved by grace are going to dump it all. Deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another. You know, if you think about it, if it's not the gospel, then there's no good news in that. What is that? If it's not the gospel of Christ, 
It's not good news. It's not a gospel. They might call it a gospel, but it's not a gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you. Again, we don't know the names. They know who they are, and Paul's readers know who they are. And this is what they're doing. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's their thinking. That's their desire. That is their objective. They're not just mixed up with some bad doctrine on an on a, you know, accidental basis. They are intentionally doing this. This is their design. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to preach legalism? Okay, well, not hard to imagine. I've been told. Jim Myers has been told. We, in fact, we have stories from, from Ukraine, from Russia, because every Baptist church in Ukraine is Armenian, and they're all legalists, and they're all, uh, they don't preach eternal security. They, they preach you can lose your salvation if you don't do what you should do, if you don't do what we tell you. Okay? And when Jim Myers has tried to teach eternal security to pastors in Ukraine and pastors in Russia, they say, we could never teach that. They say, if we preach that, we would never get anybody to volunteer for anything. How insane is that? Right? They're, they're not concerned over whether it's true or whether it's false. That's kind of not even a question in their mind. Their question is, if we preach that, we won't get any volunteers in our churches. We'll never get anybody to serve in anything. That's why they won't preach it. So you can show them verses, you can show them Bible, you can show them truth. They don't care about the truth. They want people serving in their churches. And it's not hard to imagine something similar here, although I think it was, I think the Judaizing legalism is different in this aspect. They have, we're told at the end of the book that they were trying to, um, to kind of fade some heat away from them because they had some other legalists that were uh, giving them a hard time. And so they were trying to get these guys to get circumcised so they could, you know, wave their foreskins around and say, look what we've done and we've got some victory here and it's just sad. Anyway, that's Galatians. We've, we finished Galatians and uh, those MP3s are sitting there on their website. Um, but the idea that they want to disturb believers. And, and how are they doing it? They're preaching. They're speaking the Word of God without fear, right? To, to bring in the term from the expression from Philippians. They are fearlessly proclaiming their perverted gospel trying to disturb the believers there in uh, the Galatian churches. And so these things become our clues. And when we observe this, when we pick up on this, if we see preaching for the wrong reasons, that's why the, the warnings are given in, the, in 1 Timothy, don't lay hands on a man too hastily. You know, slow things down. If he's not ready to be ordained, you know, slow things down because you don't want to blow up a church. Make sure he's ready. Make sure he's qualified. Make sure he's humble. Make sure he's doing it for the right reasons. All right? And there's a whole list of things there. First Timothy 3. Uh, you know, make sure it's good for his marriage. Make sure it's good for his family. Make sure all these other things are in place in, uh, in that capacity. All right, so I promised before we leave I was going to look at the Judgment Seat of Christ passage, so let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and then 1 Corinthians 4. I think... Um, We'll see the, uh, the motivation that's at work um, that go together to describe this. Plus you also got Romans 12 and there's other passages that speak about standing before the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment seat of God. But notice here, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 um, 
starting in verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. That's what he did. His, his construction work in, in Corinth was to lay the foundation. And then he moved on. And then God brought somebody else in to, lay, uh, to build on that foundation. So I laid a foundation, another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. So the, the criteria of the judgment seat of Christ is our building materials and how we build. Okay? For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you don't preach the gospel, if you're not preaching Jesus, you're not laying a foundation. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Notice, there are six building materials, but they're all building materials. The activity is all building. Just as with the good guys and the bad guys, their activity is speaking fearlessly. Speaking the truth of the Word of God fearlessly. Same thing here. They're doing the same activity. They're all building. But on the one hand, they're building with the precious metals. On the other hand, they're... they're, uh, cutting corners. <laughs> They're going cheap on the materialist. Okay? You know? The materialist has gold, silver, precious stones and they substitute the wood, hay, and stubble in there and I don't know, pocket the difference or whatever they're doing. Money laundering. Um, but notice, each man's work will become evident. And they think they can cover it up. And evidently, according to this text, nobody knows until the Bema what they've been doing. Because it's the fire. It's the day. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will dokibazo the quality of each man's work. And so then we find out. And so the good guys from chapter 1, the bad guys, they're all going to be there. And they all did the same thing. They preached the Word of God without fear. But the fire will hit. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains... Not hard to imagine. Gold, silver, precious stones. Fire doesn't consume them. It can remove impurities. It can, it can uh, cleanse, but it's not going to consume like it does with the wood, hay, and stubble. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, notice that's an if. Some folks won't have anything that remains. But if something remains, he will receive a reward. And some will have more reward than others. Get that? But if any man's work is burned up, again, that's an if. You mean there's going to be believers that have nothing burned up? He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So you can't lose your salvation. Even the biggest loser in the church age has nothing left over but the resurrection body will stand there in the resurrection body and a whole pile of ashes around him. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. See, this is not a judgment day thing about whether you get to go to heaven or not. This is not St. Peter at the pearly gates saying, why do I let you in? Okay, and all those dumb jokes I hate. All right? This is, okay, some of them are kind of cute. But I, I still I despise the theology behind those stupid jokes. This is a judgment that evaluates the production. And everybody's producing something, either with divine viewpoint or with human viewpoint, with in fellowship or out of fellowship. Okay, Now, Paul gets sidetracked into some other things for the rest of the chapter, but he does come back in chapter 4 to the idea that uh, he says it's required of a steward to be found trustworthy. And uh, to me, in verse 3, it's a very small thing that I'll be examined by you or any human court. 
In fact, I do not even examine myself. You know, he doesn't spend a lot of time navel-gazing or wondering, you know, what, you know, because whatever he does, he believes he's doing it as unto the Lord. And uh, so far as he knows, that's it. I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. So therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. What's the time? The day. The day that will show it when the fire will test the quality of each man's work. See, so many believers appoint themselves as the Bema judge and they put the court in session now. And they say, all right, right here, right now, you don't measure up. <laughs> and we're not there yet. And uh, it's not the day and you're not the judge, so shut your mouth, okay? He says, but wait until the Lord comes. And here's what he's going to do. He will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. I see, some of that stuff you thought you got away with. Uh-uh. And he will disclose the motives of each man's heart. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. And we know that it's all in connection with what he introduced in chapter 3 because he brings it back to Apollos and himself and the rest of that there in verse 6, these things I've applied, figured you'll apply to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So it's all connected. And the criteria for that gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, that is the motives of each man's hearts. That's what we're talking about. You could do exactly the same thing. And you can do more. You can do, you can do more than the next guy. But if you did it for the wrong motives, it's wood, hay, straw, and, and it, it will not endure for eternity. I hope we're clear on that. All right. Well, that's the, uh, that's the issue there. We'll pick up... Uh, there's kind of a bottom line. Either way, Christ is glorified, even, even for the wrong motives. Paul says, at least I can rejoice in Christ being preached. So uh, that'll conclude that paragraph and uh, take us from there. But that's Sunday morning, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Father, for the reminder that even if we're doing the right thing, if we're doing it in the wrong way or doing it for the wrong reasons, Father, it is, it is not right. And so uh, I thank you for this reminder. I pray that we would be able to evaluate what we're doing and why we're doing it. I pray that uh, in all things, Father, we would uh, be imitators of Christ, imitators of Paul, and imitators of the good guys from Philippians chapter 1, Father. We want to be motivated by love, uh, knowing the appointments. We want to be uh, operating in purity, Father, in all the descriptions of, uh, of the right service in that chapter. Father, might Austin Bible Church be imitators of those, of those faithful saints. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.